0: What's up? Welcome back. I'm Adam Stachowiak, and you are listening to The Changelog. On this show, Jared and I talk with the hackers, leaders, and innovators from all areas of the software world. We face our imposter syndrome, so you don't have to. Today on The Changelog, Richard Hip returns to catch us up on all things SQLite, his single file web server written in C called ALTHPD, and Fossil, the source code manager he wrote and uses to manage SQLite development instead of Git. Big thanks to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by Gitpod. Gitpod lets you spin up fresh, ephemeral, automated dev environments in the cloud in seconds. And I'm here with Johannes Landgraf, co-founder of Gitpod. Johannes, you recently opened up your free tier to every developer with a GitLab, GitHub, or Bitbucket account. What are your goals with that?
1: Thanks, Adam. As you know, everything we do at Gitpod centers around eliminating friction from the workflow of developers. We work towards a future where ephemeral cloud-based development environments are the standard in modern engineering teams. Just think about it. It is 2021 and we use automation everywhere. We automate infrastructure, CI-CD build pipelines and even writing code. The only thing we have not automated are developer environments. They are still brittle, tied to local machines and a constant source of friction during onboarding and ongoing development. With Gitpod, this stops. Our free plan gives devs access to cloud-based developer environments for 50 hours per month. Companies such as Google, Facebook and most recently GitHub have internally built solutions and moved software development to the cloud. I know I'm biased, but I can fully relate. Once you experience the productivity boost and peace of mind that automation offers, you never want to go back. Gitpod is open source and with our free tier, we want to make cloud-based development available for everyone. Very cool. All right, if this gets you excited, learn more and get started for
0: free at gitpod.io. Again, gitpod.io.
2: Richard Hip here, a long-awaited return to the changelog. Richard, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So excited to have you back. We first had you on the show back in 2016, talking SQLite, and I will pronounce that
3: correctly and do my best. Well, There's no <laughs> correct pronunciation. You call it whatever you want.
2: <laughs> well, Adam was slapping my wrist yesterday because we were talking in prep for this, and I kept calling it SQLite. He's like, now you know Richard pronounced the SQLite, and I said, I just can't do it. I'm and, but I, I'll do my best.
0: <laughs> And ever since then, Richard, I've been on your side, like out there just spreading the word, how it's truly spoken. And I guess if you don't feel strongly about that, then we won't enforce it. But you said the right way, so I've been following your rules. Well, I think we actually broke news and
2: probably the most cited episode of ours out there on the internet is episode, is it 201? Two oh one, Yep. With Richard Hip, how you pronounce SQLite. And we got the we set the record straight. And that's probably the most linked to episode. Not only that, Richard, but we've had many people over the years say, yeah. you got to get Richard back on the show. So we're happy to have you. We're here to get an update on SQLite. We're also here to talk about Fossil, which is your own SCM, which does a lots of interesting stuff. What's an SCM, Jared? See, I had to look this up because I thought it was source control management, but I think it's software configuration manager. Richard, what, what's SCM stand for?
3: I always thought software configuration management, but source control management works too, I guess.
2: Sort of. I mean, well, I guess we'll find out that it does more than just source control, right? Like it does a lot of right. things, but also can, do you configure software, software configuration? I don't know. Neither one of them, I guess, fits all that Fossil does, but uh, SCMs, definitely a thing. Thing think that isn't discussed so much anymore because I think everybody, for the most part, except for you and your community, Richard, are just using Git and GitHub. Pretty much. Yep. Yeah. So it's fun to find out an alternative that's viable and long lasting and beloved by those who use it. We're going to learn a bunch about fossil. Maybe we'll have some converts after this episode, but let's catch up with SQLite first. It's been five years. It's probably still the most used software in the world. Maybe second place to C lib or maybe curl is catching up. I don't know. There's a few of those that are just ubiquitous, but what else is it on Mars is
3: yeah. is, Is SQLite on Mars? Do you know? You know, I don't know. But every time we have this conversation, somebody writes and says, oh, yeah, it's definitely here or there. It's in just about every electronic device you have. It's in your car, if you've got Mm -hmm. a recent car. It's in most of your computers required to boot up these days. It's certainly in all of your phones. I think that there's probably more instances of SQLite running than all other database engines combined.
2: Which is amazing to just think about. It's scary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's scary for you because you're the one con- uh, that's right managing the configuration of the software, right?
3: Yeah, well, it does change your worldview. I mean, suddenly it's like, um, oh, boy, I need to pay attention to this, don't I? Right. I can't
2: mess this up. So does development slow, a slow pace because of that nowadays, or does it still move pretty fast? Or is, is SQLite pretty mature so that you don't do too much to it?
3: It has slowed from from the early days, but, I mean, we still are adding a lot of features and we do a lot of changes. We don't talk about the rate of code churn very much because that would scare people. Because it's high? It is for a piece of software that's used this widely and and is used so much. But we do have... We actually spend most of our time testing it, you know, because Mm. that's important. I was... Oh, a few years ago, uh, we were talking with uh, a, a young college graduate and it's a young woman and and she was talking to me and she says, well, she, she was in software too. And she said, well, I just do testing. I'm just a tester. She, she was very self-deprecating. And I thought, shoot, that's all I ever do is test. <laughs> I spend all my day testing. <laughs> I'm just a tester. Yeah. Because people write in, they'll, they'll have some issue or we'll, we'll do a new feature and, and, and adding the feature takes an hour. And then we'll spend weeks just testing it. And, yeah. But even that, there there is a lot of code churn. Um, I know that, um, like, OpenBSD, somehow they've heard for a while adopted SQLite into their core set of mm. packages because it was being used for their, um, I think, for the search engine on their, their man pages. But they wanted to stay up to date, and, and they feel compelled to do a code audit for every line of code that changes. And then, oh, wow. And so we were changing SQLite faster than the rest of the entire core package combined. And they said, no, we just can't keep up. So they <laughs> they had to write their own database engine for their uh, – Oh, they dropped you as a dependency. Yeah, they had to drop it because we were, the, the code churn was just too high.
0: Wow. Well, don't you have it in your uh, license where you can – or is that with Fossil? Did I misread that where you can – I think your words were steal the code and use it however you want, even for commercial use.
3: That's for Fossil. Yeah, that's well, fossil. SQLite is public domain, and, yeah. and you can do anything you want with that. Right. I wish I'd say I'd thought of this. It's kind of evolved. I mean, we do have a lot of public tests that are out there that are public domain as well, but some of our test code is proprietary, some of it. Why is that? Because it was paid for by mm. somebody? Originally, we thought we were going to sell this and make money from it, and that's how we were going to support ongoing development that didn't really play out. Nobody ever bought it. It does sort of become our business value, our intellectual property. I mean, you can take the SQLite code and fork it and start your own thing, the tests, but you don't have the full test suite. Oh, okay. You've got a lot of tests, but not all of them. And so we've got a little bit of advantage over you there. So is most of
2: your uh, business income is support contracts for SQLite?
3: It's pretty much all support. We have some extensions like the encryption extension that we'll sell to people on a license basis, but the bulk of the of the revenue is from support contracts. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do that because if your business depends on this, you want to protect your supply chain, and we can sell them a support contract, which is a lot cheaper than them hiring somebody to support it themselves. So, mm-hmm. when I hire the experts, right? Right. The ones with all the tests. And if we're doing our job well, they never call (laughs) us, you know.
0: That's right. How does that uh, play into the makeup of the business then? Like when you think about growing the business, essentially you have to make worse software, right? (laughs) To some degree, right? Software that requires, you know.
3: Yeah, that that requires maintenance. That's right. In order to sell more maintenance contracts, we have to deliberately introduce bugs. Okay, I'm not sure. I don't want to go there. (laughs) Okay. That's that's not the way I want to do it people there I have talked to a number of people who have made a lot of money in the software business, and they look at what we're doing and they say oh richard you could you could make a lot of money doing this. Let me show you how and, yeah and they're probably right. I don't doubt that if they had been the manager of this project, we would have made a lot of money but mm. you know i'm just I'm not gifted that way it's not that's not who I am i'm right. I'm much more the hacker, you know, lock me, in, lock me in a room with a computer and push pizzas under the door and leave me alone. Ah. <laughs> uh, so the, the business, we've kept the business small. Yeah. It's not a promise, but we want to support SQLite until the year 2050. And, you know, you have to be careful and, and, and that changes your way of thinking. We want to make sure that everything we do is sustainable in a business sense.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So are you still slinging code?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Every day? Pretty much every day, yeah. Nice. What's your discipline
0: towards that? Do you have like a, a time block in your calendar? Do you, uh, It's two o'clock, time to code.
3: No, no, it, I code it on an as-needed basis. <laughs>
0: which, is, which is daily, apparently.
3: <laughs> well, it just depends on when things come up. I mean, customers will write in with questions or, you know, I'll think of an idea. I'll be out running. And I think, this is a feature we really need. And then I'll cut the run short and come home and clean up and get busy coding. There you it's go.
2: Just, and
3: you'll test it for two weeks. Or a month, or whatever. Yeah.
2: So, how big is the company? Like, how many people are working on this? Or this this support contract supporting?
3: I've got three guys working on it with me right now. Okay. And we're all distributed, so it's always been that way. Yeah. So.
2: Well, kind of living the dream. I mean, if that's what you like doing, yeah. Why not keep doing it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Is there any plans for a SQLite Cloud?
3: There are other companies working on that as we speak. Yes,
2: gotcha. <laughs> yeah. So one thing that has changed, or maybe hasn't changed, but Adam and I have become aware of this, is last time we talked, 2016. Of course, it was already pervasive, right? It's already out there in, in tons of things. But like the, it's not client-server, and so the, I guess what you call like server-side, write-heavy, like web server-style usage is really the place where SQLite wasn't playing. Quite as much because you would switch to a Postgres or something at that point. But it seems like a lot of people are taking it more serious, even for like backends on web servers nowadays. We know Ben Johnson has his Lightstream project, which is like streaming replication. So there's like tooling around. Hey, I actually want to use this in a production capacity on a web server or a web application backend. Whereas it didn't seem like people were doing that then, or maybe they just weren't talking about it as much. They're doing it and talking about it now.
3: Yeah. No. So SQLite was originally designed to be more of the database engine for the edge of the network. Yeah, like embedded. Versus the core of the network. Right. It's, you know, it's out on out on the peripheral devices, not in the core data center. Mm-hmm. But for example, uh, I can talk about now Bloomberg. Their entire organization runs off of SQLite. Now, it's a customized version of SQLite called ComDb2. They they have their own storage engine, which is hmm which spans multiple data centers and is highly redundant. But the SQL uh, query planner and uh, executor is all SQLite. Mm. And then Expensify uses a stock version of SQLite to run everything. Really? Dave Barrett, the founder of the company, wrote um, this product called um, Bedrock. And he open sourced it. It's out there on GitHub. It's sort of a wrapper around SQLite. His, his idea is that um, he builds a server for the, for the application that is doing the database processing. And the the, the front-end devices, they don't speak SQL directly. They, they call essentially stored procedures. And so you, you don't have any concern with SQL injection because everything is done with stored procedures. But the server thing, Bedrock, uh, uses SQLite for all of its underlying processing. Huh. He's published stuff where he's getting like I think three million transactions per second.
0: It's incredible. Yeah.
3: It's an insane amount of volume. So so though there, there are cases of that, but still I think the predominant use case is cell phones and yeah and Raspberry Pis and the Internet of Things.
0: Does your business then have a relationship with Expensify and Bloomberg and, you know, this open source project you mentioned?
3: We do. <laughs> Yes, okay. we support it for them and and uh, and a few other companies like that. Some of which wish to be public, and others which don't. Yeah, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're happy to work either way. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think what's interesting here is, is
0: just a side note on this. Really, is like the is this sort of desire or this you know one way thinking that because you built the database that's amazing and widely used, that it has to be this massive company or it has to have. 2 million in recent funding with billions of dollars of venture, you know, of, of valuation, you know, like this, this, that's the way you have to do it. And I love that you push back on, I mean, based on what you say here, that you push back on the idea that you said you're not equipped for that and that you like the small company feel, you know, you like to code every day, you know, that you're not influenced out of your norm, out of your comfort zone, your love, your passion to build a company you don't actually want to run.
3: Yeah. It's, um, it's hard to know exactly what to do. Um, but I have made that choice and it's worked out really well. Yeah. Now, who knows? Maybe I would have been happier another way, but we'll never know, right? right. <laughs> I'm happy now. And so that's, I guess that's what counts, huh?
2: Yeah, you can't go back and fork your life at that point no. and just run both tracks and see which one would have worked out better. But
3: no, everything's worked out really well. And, and when we've been able to solve a lot of problems for a lot of people, and it's been just an amazing journey. Uh, One of the great things is I've been able to go out and visit so many different companies and so many different cultures and see so many different styles of development. It's really been an eye-opener. I would have never imagined that there was such a diversity of corporate cultures and development styles out there.
0: Mm. Jared mentioned Lightstream and Ben Johnson. What are your thoughts on that in particular, this idea that you can, you know, using the replication process of SQLite and doing what he's done with that? What, What are your thoughts on Ben's project in particular?
3: Yeah, you know, it's, I think it's a, a, an interesting idea. I, uh, we actually, uh, uh, Dan, one of the other developers and I had a Jitsi conversation with Ben at one point, And uh, we really appreciate what he's doing. He's not the only one doing that, let me say. <laughs> there are other groups that are working on that as we speak. You know, I, I think it's a great idea. I really applaud him doing it. Whether or not it gets traction, takes off, I can't predict. Mm-hmm. I just don't know. I want to keep what we're doing here with us focused on the internet or the, the database for the for the edge of the network. I don't personally want to get involved with making it massively scalable like that. I think it's a great thing. It's a very important problem that needs to be solved. But just what we have now is enough to keep us busy. And if I try and take on too much,
0: mm-hmm.
3: we would lose focus and yep. we'd start making mistakes you have to find the right balance there and and right now SQLite is, is pushing the limits of what a small team like this can, can reasonably control to go further I would no longer be able to understand everything that's in the code and we'd have to start delegating and, and who knows where that might lead I don't mm-hmm. I don't think that I would be very good at that and yeah. I don't think that I would enjoy that so we're not going to do that <laughs> stay focused on the small stay focused on one thing that we can do well yeah That gives people like Ben an opportunity to do their thing as well. We're contributing to him.
2: Yeah. Well, it creates an ecosystem around the thing versus you having to be the ecosystem, which I think is healthy. And like you said, it's opportunity. Do you ever see things out there that people are doing with uh, SQLite or building on top of or around similar to Lightstream where you think either I wish I would have thought of that or actually I am going to take this one and put it into the code base. You ever done
3: that? Uh, yeah, I, I can't call specific instances to mine, but, uh, yeah, I'm always watching what other people are doing and thinking, well, that's a good idea. We should try and do that. Or, um, Mm -hmm. how can we make SQLite solve that problem directly rather than having this add on, you know, the thing to watch right now is DuckDB. I don't know if you've Hmm. seen that one. Have not. Duck? DuckDB. Okay. It's a column store instead of a row store. So it's optimized for big aggregate queries. And so if you've got a large set of data and you're running analytics on it, they say DuckDB runs a lot faster. And DuckDB has borrowed a lot of the ideas that we pioneered with SQLite, where they they do an amalgamation. It's just a single file of source code. I think they stole our um, command line client and just reused it. (laughs) They're fine. I'm I'm cool with that. Let them do that. Well, it's public domain, so you better be cool with it, right? Yeah, of course. (laughs) So, you know, that's inspired me to think about well, can we have a roast, a column store option for SQLite as well? What would that look like? How can we build that out in in a backwards compatible way so that it, you know, it doesn't break legacy applications? Yeah. Because a big part of what we do is, um, the Escalite file format is very carefully defined, and we guarantee that it's going to be unchanged for years to come, or at least not changed in incompatible ways for years to come through the year 2050. It'd be much easier to write a column store if we could go back and redo the file format. Right. There's lots of things I would have done differently, <laughs> knowing now what I, if I'd known back then what I know now, but we're kind of locked in by legacy. We, we need to support the literally trillions of SQLite databases that are already in the field. So how can we do that and do a column store at the same time?
2: Couldn't you just have another file format that's like column store mode? And it's like, now it uses this file.
3: Yeah, but uh, then, then you've got added complexity. The other thing we need to balance is that because SQLite runs on small devices, we need to be careful not to let the footprint of the library grow too big. There's been steady growth in the size of the library. We're pushing 600 kilobytes right now.
2: That doesn't sound like very much.
3: <laughs> yeah, these days it doesn't sound like very much. But back 15 years ago, folks like Nokia were just and Motorola were just beating us up. Well, can you save another hundred bytes? You know, I mean, it was right. These days it's less of a concern, but at the same time, we just don't want to let it go wild and suddenly turn into a 10 megabyte library that you have to link into your application. So there's a balance there. I mean, yeah. adding a column store means a totally new query planner. You know, how much extra space would that be? So, I mean, that's something that we'll be look, I'll be looking at in the coming year, coming couple of years, probably.
2: Well, here's a couple of examples. Application size. So here I'm, I'm looking at my iOS app updates. Zoom, cloud meetings, update 86 megabytes. Audible, <laughs> update 119 <laughs> megabytes. Uh, Google Maps, this one will probably be big, 206 megabytes. So I feel like, you know, <laughs> maybe the, that one dependency could be a little bit larger and nobody would notice. <laughs> but point taken.
0: Well, especially if at the edge, too, you got, uh, you know, edge devices probably have SD cards for the most part or right. smaller drive types that just don't have the capacity, you know, things like that that really come into play. Yeah. Something that uh, you kind of made me think of there was when I asked you before about the business and optimizing for. Needing support, I think actually you're optimizing for something worth supporting, you know.
3: That's a good way of looking at it, yeah.
0: Because, you know, it's not worth supporting unless people are using it, you know? yeah. unless it's useful. <laughs> sure. You know, needing support is one thing, but being worth supporting is a different thing.
3: Yeah, so um, I'm I'm not very good at sales. And so in order to get customers, we really have to make it so that their business utterly depends upon SQLite. Because it's just so stinking good, <laughs> right? <laughs> Yeah. So that that encourages me to make it better all the time. Yeah. So the reason SQLite is so reliable is because I'm such a bad salesman.
0: <laughs> this episode is brought to you by our friends at LaunchDarkly, feature management for the modern enterprise power testing in production at any scale. Here's how it works. LaunchDarkly enables development teams and operation teams to deploy code at any time even if a feature isn't ready to be released to users. Wrapping code with feature flags gives you the safety to test new features and infrastructure in your production environments without impacting the wrong end users. When you're ready to release more widely, update the flag status and the changes are made instantaneously by their real-time streaming architecture. Eliminate risk, deliver value, get started for free today at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com.
2: So I think this will lead us in the fossil, but I wanted to touch briefly on alt-httpd because I saw this and it just made me laugh. (laughs) Of course, Richard Hipp wrote his own web server, to power sqlite.org tell us about this i mean i understand you like to write your own tools but you know apache existed nginx existed maybe it was very young but it existed
3: well no 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 no, they well apache existed when i when i first wrote this um
2: nginx was out there
3: but it was big and complicated and and i was i said well i'll just you know i'll stand up apache we'll do that i i looked at the documentation i read through the documentation multiple times and i said to myself can I configure this in a way that will be secure? Maybe with some trial and error, but how would I know that it's secure? I wouldn't really know. (laughs) I mean, you really have to spend some time and become an Apache expert to know that it's secure. Maybe they have better tools now, two decades on, but it occurred to me in order to write something that I would really trust to run on my servers, I need to write it myself. And so I put together alt-httpd, It's very, very simple. It's a single file of C code so that you can audit it and make sure that it's not doing anything weird. And I put it up there and it works. It's not, make no claim to be the most efficient. It is not the web browser that you want to deploy at scale. This is not the web browser you want to use if you're building the next Facebook. But for small websites, it works great. It's the traditional... Fork a new process to handle each HTTP request design. So we handle one HTTP request, it calls exit, and the operating system cleans up the mess. And so that's really simple, secure. We don't have to worry about memory leaks or anything like that. And it handles the load fine. I mean, we're doing, I mean, it's not a huge load. Though. We're getting, what, 10 HTTP requests per second, of about 20% of which are CGI requests. And so that's fine. Uh, You know, a a Linode will handle that without any trouble. Would it be more efficient to do it with uh, NGINX? Maybe, but this works. And so I'm going to stick with it. I'm not not recommending that you go out and deploy this on your website. But if you want something quick and easy to set up that you can read in a couple of hours and understand, it's out there. You're welcome to use it. So I wrote it back... um, around the year 2000. It's it's over two decades old. I, I put it under – it sort of lived in other version control systems for a while. I split it out as its own project only just recently. So don't get the idea that I wrote it just recently. We've been using this for decades.
2: It says on the website that it's been – in use since 2004, and NGINX was released in 2004. So I thought NGINX existed, but maybe when you originally wrote it... it back, maybe
3: it did exist, I just had never heard of it. Yeah. That's entirely the case.
2: Have you ever heard of not-invented-here syndrome? Yeah, <laughs> and,
3: and, and you could make the case that I have a lot of that in me. <laughs>
2: I think maybe it leads us a little bit into Fossil, but go ahead, continue.
3: Yeah, oh yeah, you know, it, I tend to write a lot of my own stuff, and, and maybe this is just because... For me, it's easier to write my own than to figure out what, how somebody else's works. This came up with SQLite when um, SQLite version one, we're on version three of SQLite, which came out in 2004. Version one, the storage engine was GDBM, the GNU database manager, it was a key value store. Uh, it was hashing based, it was GPL, so we needed something better. And I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll get Berkeley DB and I'll use that as the storage engine. And I spent literally two days studying the documentation, trying to figure out how it worked. And the documentation's okay. But there were a lot of corner cases that I needed to understand. And I recognized that in order to understand these corner cases, I'm either going to have to read the entire source code to to Berkeley DB, or I'm going to have to write a bunch of test programs to see what it does really. And I thought, you know what? It's going to be easy to write my own. I'm just – I write my own storage engine. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did. And – I got lucky that worked out well in the end, because um, having control of your own storage engine, it allows you to do optimizations and features that you couldn't do if you had to maintain compatibility to somebody else's API. So uh, these sorts of things help a lot. Uh, with alt-httpd, I can do things on the website that I can't do easily with Nginx and Apache, because it does things that they don't do. And so I can't really easily convert the website over to those now because I'd have to recode it to the Apache Nginx style.
2: Do you have a for instance, like something that you can do there?
3: Like, well, with uh, alt-httpd, there's no configuration file. You just point it to a directory that contains your content. And if the files in, the, in that directory are, are executable, they're CGI. And if they're not executable, they're static content.
2: Okay. So any executable file can live there. You can throw a PHP script in there or a Ruby file, and it will just run it like a CGI.
3: Or run it like a CGI, yeah.
2: Sounds kind of dangerous.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so you don't put executables there that you don't want. Okay, I just messed it with you. <laughs> But the other thing is it also – it drops itself into a change root jail. So the okay. executables you put there need to be statically linked. Yeah, because they're not going to be able to find the library, the shared libraries, and, and slash lib that they need. So you statically link them, and and you you put just a few that you really do need, mm-hmm. like fossil,
0: <laughs> like fossil, yeah. It's also got one use case too, which is your use case. So it can be, you know, that strict. Whereas yeah. you know, yeah. mainstream might be like that's kind of painful,
3: right. And, but you know I've never tried to push it I've never tried to publish it or never tried to get other people to use it a few other people have downloaded it and use it and they say it's great and if that works for them that's that's wonderful but I wrote it for my own use and if nobody ever else uses it it's still been a great yeah great job the other thing is uh, every now and then we get these very pernicious robots that come invading the website and trying to bring the server down and uh, because I control the web server I can just put a little test in there and you know that that identifies the the malicious robot and whenever I see one I call exit you know because
2: <laughs> <laughs> how are you just uh, detecting a certain request signature or a user agent or how do you do that IP address
3: uh, it depends on the robot yeah
2: so you've been doing like a, it's like a tower defense game you've been playing you know all these years
3: yeah it, it, it's a whack-a-mole because <laughs> there are always new ones coming oh, up oh
2: I've played a lot of whack-a-mole in my day
3: but like there was one a few years ago that uh, it, it tried to pretend to be a, um, a, a r- ordinary web browser but in the user-agent string, they'd misspelled one of the words.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Gotcha. So I just look for that misspelling in the user-agent string. And if I see that misspelling, call exit. You're done. You're
0: done. <laughs> is there anything you learned, though, along this journey? Like you mentioned writing your own software. It may not be whatever everyone else might do. But is there any lessons you've learned in particular of writing this web server that you've been able to like, apply to SQLite or to Fossil, which we'll talk about? Like, what have you learned doing it that uh, may be a lesson that you wouldn't have learned otherwise?
3: I, You know, I don't – I can't point to specific lessons. I do find that it does work well to control your own tools. Uh, well, I, one, uh, if you do a diff between um, alt HTTPD d and the web server that's built into Fossil, you'll find a lot of commonality there. <laughs> okay, so there's – they're kind of bas- – I barred heavily between the two. Yeah. But what I've found is that when you control your own tools, you can, you can go further and do things that, that you can't do if you're depending on somebody else for your tools. And I won't use Alt-HTTPD as the example, but rather Lemon, the parser generator that I use in SQLite. know, most people, when they're doing a, a language parser, they'll bring up Yak or Bison. But I'd written my own version back in the 1980s because I was dissatisfied with the interface yak and i use that for sqlite and nobody and it i've had it out there for open source for a long time and nobody ever noticed it until it appeared in sqlite but by using lemon as the parser generator i was able to add new features to lemon to support language features in sqlite that would just not be possible to do with yak so for example um we use a new keyword. We, we just recently in SQLite, we added the materialized keyword. But suppose there's somebody with a schema out there and they've got a column named materialized. If that became a proper keyword, then suddenly when they tried to read their database in, it wouldn't be able to parse the schema because it was using a keyword as a, as a column name. That wouldn't work. So we have this feature in Lemon so that if it sees a keyword in a context where it thinks It needs an identifier, and it can't use the keyword there. It it will change the keyword into an identifier and use it as as an identifier. Mm. You can't do stuff like that in YAK, but because we control the parser generator, we we can pull little tricks like that and maintain backwards compatibility. And we've also been able to optimize the 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 code generated by the parser generator so that it runs very fast since. um, a big part of the time for an SQL database engine is actually parsing the SQL.
0: I like that principle because uh, something I've learned over the years is is certain jobs require certain tools, basically. And it's kind of what you're saying, but sometimes when you have the right tool, hard jobs become easy. And if you control your tool, then you can have the right tool to make a hard job easy, essentially.
3: Sure. And, and think back years ago, I mean, the, the concept of a tool and die maker, you know, companies that had a big staff of tool and die makers, they could make their own machinery and they could out-compete. If you had to buy your machinery from somebody else and it just came as is, yeah. you had to make do with whatever they had. But if you can make your own tools, you can fine-tune your processes and, and out-compete.
0: Well, it's not just the market being able to offer the tooling, too. It's it's the all the effort that goes into it, you know, uh, survey the options, Evaluate the options, test the options, deploy the options, maintain the options, and then if that thing doesn't suit a future need, you know,
3: reevaluate the options and rinse and repeat. The yeah, thing. you don't want to make all your tools. Yeah. I mean, I am using other people's operating systems and compilers.
2: What else, folks? I mean, it, you told us last time you wrote your own editor, so you go to that yeah. to that depth. Is there any tools beyond your OS and like bedrock? that you do use, and you're like, this is actually good enough for me. I like said, or I like uh, this browser, or whatever. what are some tools that you use that you don't feel compelled to write?
3: Uh, well, I use, you know, commercial web browsers. I, use, I normally use Firefox, but, you know, I'll use Chrome or, or Safari on occasion as well, or some of the other ones like Brave. Uh, certainly use the, the standard compilers. Linux, Mac, Windows, use all of those. Did
2: you write your own spreadsheet? Did you write your own?
3: No, no. I use you know Neo Office, <laughs> Open Office. Excel is actually
0: really winning, even in enterprise today. There's a lot of stuff about like people trying to overturn the use of Excel because of the way work has changed, and they can't kill it. Basically, like it oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it survives. Well, it's so malleable and powerful. I mean,
3: it's very powerful. I, I see a lot of people use Excel as a as a, they they use it for for making. Um, Documents. It's not just a spreadsheet. It's a, it's a formatting engine <laughs> and a database.
2: You know, yeah,
3: and a database, absolutely. So yeah, you use the tools that are appropriate. But but I have you know I have my own, my own text editor. I have my own web server. My own parser generator. My own version control system,
1: <laughs>
3: etc. So I, yeah, um, I, I keep keep threatening to do my own um, email transfer agent. And I've actually put work into that, and that turns out to be a really, really hard problem. You'd think that it's, that's a harder problem than writing a database engine, actually, because of all the legacy you have to support. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really dissatisfied with, with what we have available in terms of um, email systems. And so if you want to host your own email, that's kind of hard to do these days. It's super challenging. I mean, it
0: takes so much to work to do that. We actually just logged something. I can't think of all the details, but they were, like, giving a walkthrough of how, essentially, to – host your own email and all the things you would have to do. And I'm just like, no, I mean, it's just so much, you know, it's just so much.
3: I put an enormous number of hours into trying to come up with a single unified system that will simplify that in some way. I don't have anything to show for that yet. Mm-hmm. It's a hard problem. I'm still working on it.
0: Well, the cool thing though, is that, uh, is the law of numbers, essentially. Like if you keep writing your own tools, Sure, SQLite has been the, the winner of the tool, right? It's it's what you built your company around. It's where you, you and your team get your livelihood from. But, you know, there may be, you know, the next big thing behind a tool you decide to make your own. You know, like this editor. is it a sole, Are you the sole user of it? Or is your, I think your I'm members? the sole okay. user. Yeah, yeah.
3: <laughs> None of the other team members use it. They all use uh, VI or, or Emacs. Yeah. But you never know.
0: You never know, right?
3: You never know, and and, well, and I never expected SQLite to go viral like it did. That was a complete surprise to me. So,
2: if I were you, and I wrote an editor, I would name it HIP, H-I-P-P. Like, that's <laughs> such a cool name for an editor, right? Yes. What's it called?
3: Well, I call it just the letter E okay. because it's easy to type. <laughs> okay.
0: That's editor, yeah. Yeah, that's, E for editor. That's easy. Yeah. That's, <laughs> e for easy. Easy does
2: it. I think you should release that thing and just let the world decide. You know.
3: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think you'll be disappointed. I think you'll be disappointed, but... I'm very easily uh, impressed.
2: So you're not going to tackle mail quite yet because there's a lot there, but you did... I've
3: been working on it. I just don't... I, I've had no success at yeah, it. you just haven't gotten to tackle. <laughs> it's a tough nut.
2: But you have tackled, as you, we've said and teased up, version control, source control management, software configuration management, Fossil. Tell us the story of Fossil because you've been working on it. This is not a new thing. You've been doing this for a very long time. Not as long as uh, SQLite, but they're kind of symbi- symbiotic. You're probably the only person since, I don't know, did the Mercurial people hang it up at this point? Are they still working on Mercurial?
3: No, I think Mercurial's still viable. They're still um, making uh, additions and releasing new features and so forth.
2: Okay, that's cool. So there's not just you versus Git, but no. there's lots of people that just Git has won the mindshare.
3: There's Git, and then there's Fossil and a bunch of mm-hmm. others, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> so tell us what, what existed when you started Fossil. Was Git there? I mean, SVN was probably the mainstay. Maybe it was before this. Tell us the history.
3: All right, so when I first started uh, writing SQLite, everything was CVS. And I know that CVS has a bad rap with with moderns because Linus had some very bad things to say about it. And, you know, most of the criticisms of CVS are are correct. I mean, it, it's it's not not good. On the other hand, I'm unwilling to say anything bad about CVS because I had to use the things that came before. And if you'd ever used the version control systems that came before CVS, you'd think CVS is really great. Okay. <laughs> so, but yeah, it, it has its issues. And so we started out with SQLite and CVS because back in 2000, that's what everybody's using for everything. And uh, that went on for a while, but I recognized that it was inadequate. And, and Git had just started to come out. It really hadn't gotten the traction it has now. Mercurial was out, and it was still an open question, you know, do I use Git or Mercurial? And, and, and this was a – that was a big, big debate back then. This was before GitHub. And I had been doing some work with – on SQLite with some uh, avionics companies, and I'd, I'd come to understand um, this quality standard called DO-178B. And this is used, uh, the quality standard used in avionics. And I thought, well, I'm going to apply this to SQLite. And part of the do 178 b standard is version control or source control management. And I looked at the requirements that they have. And in my opinion, which doesn't really count for much, but my opinion was that neither Git nor Mercurial really filled the bill here. And I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to do my own. The other one that had influenced me was uh, called Monotone. And Monotone, if you've never heard of it, I think it was one of – as far as I know, it was the first uh, version control system that was Git-like in the sense that it it used um, SHA-1 hashes to name everything. And uh, I was I was influenced by Monotone as well. But uh, I wanted a, a version control system that would, one, it would work um, easily from behind a, a – a shared hosting environment. This was before the age of ubiquitous uh, virtual private servers. Back then when you wanted to lease space on a server, they just gave you a shell account and you had your home directory and you put your stuff in your in your uh, bin and they they ran Apache for you and it just pointed to your your directory and and, and did its thing. So I wanted something that I could run out of just a, a simple shared hosting account like that and nothing was available. And I wanted something that would meet the the standards of Dia 178 b as I understood them. And there was nothing available, so I thought, well, shoot, I'll just write my own. So <laughs> I played around with it for a couple of years. I started working on it about, even before Git came out. And then Git came out and I kept working on it. And um, I think it was about two years after Git came out that I that Fossil became self-hosting. And uh, the same principle as Git in the sense that you have immutable artifacts that get added in. And and we were using SHA-1 at the time as well. And uh, you've got a, a directed graph design, and you you commit things to it, and other people can commit simultaneously, and everybody has a copy of everything. All of that's all the same. Now, we have different names for things, but it it works very much the same, but we have some very different concepts and a a very different focus. Git is very much designed for Linux kernel development, and if you're a Linux kernel developer, Git is absolutely the best version control system in the world. It is perfectly designed for that role. But uh, SQLite has a very different development environment. With, with Linux, you've got thousands of people around the world working on this simultaneously, and then they, they upload their changes, and it goes through layers of review and administration. And Linus does not want to see every check-in that's made by every hacker that wants to contribute to the kernel. He, he wants summarized and, and vetted patches to consider to go into the main line. And Git's ideally suited for that. But SQLite development is very different. It's a small team. Everybody knows each other. Everybody sees everybody else's work all the time. And Fossil is very much optimized for that use case. Where, um, So with, with for example, Git, uh, you um, when you make some changes, you, you make your changes, then you push them up to somebody else. Where with Fossil... The default configuration is every time you commit a change it automatically pushes your changes up so that everybody else can see them right away is
2: it still distributed or is it client server
3: it's still distributed but when you're on network it behaves as if it's client server because as soon as you do the commit it's already it immediately pushes your changes out to the server if that server is available and so if you your system catches on fire you haven't lost anything i remember a few years ago um uh, that actually happened to Linus. He had disk drive caught fire or somehow went inoperable and he lost a couple of days worth of commits or something. I don't, I don't remember the details of the story. Wow. You know, because he, he wasn't pushing it out to another server until he got ready. Whereas with Fossil, that's kind of automatic. That would never happen. And which approach you want to take, I guess, really depends on what you're trying to do and what your development style is. As it happens, the Fossil development style exactly suits what sqlite wants to do and the git development style exactly suits what the linux kernels wants to do so apart from those minor differences they're really kind of the same thing the storage is, is quite a bit different of course fossil keeps all of its data in an sqlite database so fossil was designed to control the sqlite source code and it uses SQLite to store all of its information. So, I'll let you and your your listeners ponder that recursion later.
2: Yeah, it's kind of double self-hosted. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's
3: sort of <laughs> there's this little loop here. But that's really worked out really well for us because, and I didn't I didn't plan this. It just worked out that uh, Fossil has become a, a great dog fooding opportunity for me. Because Fossil is a big user of SQLite, when I'm working on Fossil, I see SQLite as – from the point of view of a, develop, of, of a user of SQLite, not as a developer. And it's happened many times where you know, developers come to me and say, oh, we need this feature, we need that feature. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking to myself – I try to be nice to people, but I think to myself, stop whining. You, know, you, can, you don't need this. <laughs> But then a few weeks later, I'll be working on Fossil and I'll, I'll see things from the from the application developer's perspective and think, you know, it really does need that after all. And then I'll go back and put it in. <laughs> and then apologize. No, no apologize no, no. never. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, why would we do that?
0: For a full you know, saying, hey, this feature's <laughs> out there, just kidding.
3: Yeah, it, it does. It really makes a huge difference to be able to experience SQLite from the application developer's perspective. It changes your whole view. And in fact, it takes me a, a, about a day to switch between developing between products because I'm looking, looking at the world from a very different lens when I'm developing SQLite versus when I'm developing Vossil.
2: Wow. So you can't context switch back and forth very easily.
3: Not easily. It's hard. It's a big context swap for me to do that. I tend to spend days working on one or the other rather than flipping back and forth between the two. So that's been a very good thing. The other, um, the other big difference, I guess, is uh, Fossil does try to. Um, people talk about Git and Mercurial as they're they're distributed. Well, well, Fossil is distributed too, in the sense that everybody has copies of all of the files. But uh, Fossil is non-distributed in a good sense of the word. It's not just the source files that it controls. It also controls your your bug tickets, your your wiki, your forum your chat room and you can hyperlink between all of these things and it manages them all together and it keeps everything in a single file on disk so fossil is non-distributed in the sense that you only have one place to go to find all of your tools and all of your files whereas if you're using another system whatever that might be you've you've got this system for version control and, oh, I'm, I'm pulling in the wiki from here and I've got that and, oh, we're using this bug tracking system and we've got a, a separate web page for that. You might have slightly different looks and feels. If you're using Markdown as your markup language, you've probably got three or four different dialects of markup that get involved. Whereas with uh, Fossil, it's all together. It's all in one file and... There's one place to go in the web to see it all.
2: Yeah, so is that one file per project then? or you're, you One like, file
3: per project.
2: Okay, yeah. so if I have two, I have a SQLite, and I also am working on Fossil, they'll have separate files, like the two projects source code.
3: Yes, they are separate files. Now, Fossil does have a feature that it keeps track of all of your Fossil repositories. So one thing that I like about it is the Fossil all command, A-L-L, So if um, I'm getting ready to go off-network, take my laptop off-network for some reason, I can go on my laptop and I can say Fossil All Sync, and it'll go and sync every single repository that's on my laptop, pulling down all the latest changes. Then I can go off-network, do lots of work on multiple projects, then I go back on-network and do Fossil All Sync, and it will, again, sync everything that's on that laptop and, and push it back out to the cloud. Mm. So it does keep track of all of your repositories, but each repository is itself distinct.
2: And is the way that it handles branching, merging, conflict resolution, is that all, would that be familiar to Git users or not?
3: That's going to be familiar. Uh, It does have the difference that Fossil retains the names of the branches. That's part of the synced logic. So with, um, with git i'm not sure how mercurial works but with git git doesn't doesn't have branch names it it only remembers the names of the leaves of the of the graph and it infers branches based on those leaves fossil actually names every branch and every check in every commit there's a tag on it that shows it. You know what, what, what branch are you a part of, and so that's part of the historical record. So everybody's talking about the same branch. With Git, if you've got multiple people working on the same project, everybody's got their own master or main or, or whatever they call it these days. But with Fossil, we use the term trunk, and there's only one trunk. And every, if you talk about trunk, everybody's talking about the same thing. If we if we're talking about branch version three then everybody's talking about the same branch so the the branch names are part of what gets synced but other than that the whole idea is is the same you you have separate branches and people go off and work on branches and then we merge the branches onto trunk Uh, the thing is um, because it's hosted with relational database we can follow branches forward in time in addition to backwards in time if you think about it with git if you know a check-in it's really easy to find the check-ins that came before. But if, say you've bisected and landed on a check-in or say a customer's coming and says, hey, we're having trouble with this check-in, you can't easily find out what came afterwards, what things were added to this check-in later in time. You have to go searching the Git log or, or do some stunts like that. And, and the GUIs don't typically provide you with this information because it's hard to find. Because the internal data structure, it, it has a pointer to the ancestors to the things that came before but there are no pointers going forward in time because the check-in is immutable and at the time of the check-in you don't know what's going to come next but if you store this information in a relational database then you can create an index and and you can follow that index forward in time and so Given a point in time, we can see what's going on in all branches simultaneously, both forwards and backwards. It's a very powerful feature to maintain situational awareness. And I talk to Git users and they say, oh, I don't need that. I've never used that. And, you know, fair enough. But I never needed BISECT until I had the capability, and now I can't live without it. Once you start using these fe- this powerful feature of being able to see what comes next, what came after this check-in, it's hard to go back. So you
2: mentioned the Git GUIs don't make it
3: easy. Does Fossil have a GUI itself? Fossil has a built-in web interface. So if you're working from the command line, you can type just fossil space ui and that will automatically bring up a web browser pointed at your repository. And so it's it's running its it's, it's got a it's got a web server running there in the in the in the product. And it automatically web, brings up your web browser and points it at, at the home page. And then you can click down through that. And the web interface, I mean, Mercurial has um, the command HG space serve, which is a similar concept, but with... Mercurial hg serve doesn't automatically bring up your web browser. You have to type HG serve, and then over somewhere else, you have to type a URL into your, your web browser to get it going. And the web interface is not nearly as rich. With the Fossil web interface, you can see everything you need to do. You can see all your tickets. You can see your wiki. You can get very detailed listings of branch history and diffs and, and blames and, and all of this. And so that is essentially your GUI, is the web interface. And the nice thing is that then when you set up a server, if if you want to, you don't have to have a server to use Fossil. You can do it peer-to-peer. But if you do set up a server, you have the exact same interface on your server. You just you run this uh, the same uh, web interface, and you get exactly the same views on the server as you do on your local machine. And the way it's set up, uh, when you do Fossil UI, it's it's got a little mini web server running locally. But you can also run it from CGI or SCGI or whatever hosting mechanism you prefer. Same interface, either way.
0: This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. For our listeners out there building applications with Square, if you haven't yet, you need to check out their API Explorer. It's an interactive interface you can use to build view, and send HTTP requests that call Square APIs. API Explorer lets you test requests using actual sandbox or production resources inside your account, such as customers, orders, and catalog objects. You can use the API Explorer to quickly populate sandbox or production resources in your account. Then you can interact with those new resources inside the seller dashboard. For example, if you use API Explorer to create a customer in your production or sandbox environment, the customer is displayed in the production or sandbox seller dashboard. This tool is so powerful Powerful and will likely become your best friend when interacting with, testing, or playing with your applications inside Square. Check the show notes for links to the docs, the API Explorer, and the developer account sign-up page, or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to jump right in. Again, check for links in the show notes, or head to developer.squareup.com slash explore slash square to play right now.
2: Back to the, I'm gonna hop us back to the branching and merging, uh, if you don't mind. One thing that I do often is throw stuff away, you know. <laughs>
3: like a, like an yeah, entire, you hit like upon a, the point of contention, haven't you? <laughs> like an entire yeah, underneath. you knew that you did this in person. <laughs> yes, uh, so I I wrote this famous article called uh, "Rebase Considered Harmful." <laughs> <laughs> Which yes. has created a lot of lot of ire amongst amongst people. <laughs> it, you know, it is a difference in philosophy, and 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 I try and understand other people's point of view. And I have come to un- appreciate the Rebase point of view more as people have pushed back. So a lot of people use Git not so much as a version control system, but as a distributed versioned file system. The difference here is subtle, but. Um, uh, yeah, if if you're doing a a, a distributed version of file system, oftentimes you want to delete files, which is this is which is kind of what rebase or throwing things away does, and and if that's what you're doing, that makes sense. It really does. But my view of of version control, which is which came out of this um, uh, DIA 178B document that I referred to earlier, is that you always keep everything. You never there's no way to delete stuff. Now you can. Shuttle stuff off onto a branch that's labeled mistake or something if, 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 it, if it doesn't work out.
2: Mistake one, mistake two, mistake three. But we have lots of
3: that. Actually, it, well, one of the things is because, um, because it's a relational database backing it up, it's okay to have multiple branches with the same name. Now that can get confusing to humans but yeah. the database doesn't care. Uh, okay, it, it it's it's really cool with that. So we have lots of branches named mistake actually. <laughs> <laughs> and and you can move stuff onto a branch after you've checked it in. You can attach uh, and you do this without changing the check-in in any way. You just add a new tag to that check-in that says, "Oh, I want you in this branch, not the one I put you in." So that happens a lot. We'll put something up there and say, oh, that was a boo-boo. Let's move this off into the mistake branch. And if you go searching on the mistake branch, you'll find lots of entries there. We'll just call it trash. Yeah. Or you, you could call it trash if you wanted yeah. to. Call it whatever you it's a want. trash can. Yeah. Call it whatever you want. You can also add a tag to these check-ins that, that say that they're hidden so that they don't show up on normal timelines and things. Now, you can still dig in and find them if you're doing forensic analysis, but they would be hidden from common view. And so this is just a difference in philosophy is that we, we believe in keeping everything. And and this is going to store all of history, the good, the bad, and the ugly.
0: There was a situation I saw with Git in particular, which maybe in this case would be bad, that someone had actually included copyrighted code into an yep. open source project and they were faced with litigation essentially or at least the threat at that time and so they had to go into the git repository and perform some git foo which required <laughs> experts and people who could you know go through yeah. you know all the different things essentially more than your average git user would you do need to get witch doctor who knows the incantation yeah the witch doctor somebody exactly. somebody who really knew git
3: we do have that capability it's a, okay. a system called purging or no, shunning, excuse me, shunning. shunning. You can shunning, yes, you can <laughs> shun artifacts. And so if somebody ch- checks in something that is say, copyrighted and you get sued, or, yeah. or you know, a, a developer goes rogue and checks porn into your repository.
2: Or a private access token or something.
3: Or, or whatever it is, you can go back and shun it. And it's the same drill where you, you need to bring in somebody with a, a, a large amount of fossil food to make this happen, but... <laughs> it does happen and we actually have had to do it once or twice but it doesn't come up in your daily daily routine
0: but it's possible is the, is the important. It's, it's
3: reserved for emergencies such as the one that you yeah you do so um, it really depends on the development style I, I really push for um, look record everything disk space is cheap other people say well I want to to work by myself and and get everything perfect and then once it's all perfect then I will push it up so that everybody else can see it. I'm going to argue that's that's not the best way to do it. I think that you need to have the humility to push up your mistakes as well as your successes. It makes
0: it a performance, really, right? Like uh, a pull request can be a performance. Yeah. You've done all the work. You've prettified this thing. You've put up this great pull request. Yeah. You've explained it very well, and it's a presentation. And it can be very performative in that case where it's like, I'm going to perform for my team rather than be who I really am, but essentially the one who's bumbling and making mistakes. And maybe that mistake was actually a smart thing, you know, or a really (laughs) dumb thing, but you never know. But it can become, it it can essentially inject the the requirement of performance in in the flows of things.
3: And my view is I'm very much opposed to that because I, I would get sucked into that trap very easily because I want to always make myself look good. So Fossil is somewhat designed to force you to show your mistakes as well as your successes, which is important to me. Sure, I have to do that for myself.
2: I don't think it quite so much as an ego thing as or a performance as it's signal versus noise. I mean, why would mm-hmm. I want to give you all my noise when I could just hand you my signal?
3: If you're doing noisy stuff, you can do that off in a branch. And then once you're ready to to, hey, blend it in with your… To blend with your coworkers, yeah. then you merge it into whatever they're working on. And the good point is there, if um, if you go on vacation for two weeks or, you know, something happens to you and you land in the hospital for a few weeks, you know, right. I hope that never happens, but it could, because it's on a branch and it's being checked in and synced, your coworkers go into, oh, what was Jared working on? Uh, we got to take this over for him while he's recovering. And they can do that. Whereas if it if it's in your own little private branch- right it's it's kind of dead for a while
2: yeah i've definitely seen that a meme where it's like in case of fire and it's like get yep. pushed, then run out of the building kind of thing because and i've had that <laughs> right and that wouldn't happen with fossil because everything's out that's right
3: when the fire alarm goes off first type get pushed then exit the building the immediately the build, yeah yeah, yeah. Well,
2: i definitely had those moments where i'm like dang i actually haven't pushed for a few days i should go do that before my laptop dies and i regret it you know i've had those feelings yeah. so i like that about fossil i definitely would like to not have that feeling but I do also think there's value in, I guess, maybe the – I wouldn't call it the privacy, but like the cheapness of being able to just sling and and just – and then be like, this doesn't have to ever go anywhere because maybe it's not going to go anywhere.
3: Yeah. In fairness, I think yours is the majority view, sure enough. Yeah, I think it is. But there's enough people out there that that like my way of doing things that um, (laughs) we have a small but devoted following (laughs) –
2: I believe it. I like how everything's built in. I think it's, it's, it's more difficult to buy in as a user because there's so much. Like maybe I love Fossil's single file model and the things you're
3: talking about, but I really hate the wiki or I really don't like the chat. You know, here's, here's the thing, and, and I encourage people to do this. I wrote Fossil for SQLite, and if it, it accomplishes nothing but support SQLite. It's achieved its mission, and it's done that very well. And any other use is just gravy. So look, even if you want to keep using Git, I'm fine with that. I, it, you're not going to hurt my feelings in any way. Oh, yeah. But it's worth it to you to study what we've done and look at the ideas and then take these ideas and use and, and move them to whatever other version control system that you're using. Say, hey, they had this cool idea over here. Why can't we do this in GitHub or GitLab? Why doesn't GitHub Lab support this? Right. That will make your experience better, but, but maybe... Blended with your work style.
0: That was my next question was like, you know, how do you, how do you take some of these features or really just ideas, you know, and transplant them to, you know, the Git world essentially, GitLab, GitHub, because it seems like something that's happened, I think, with GitHub or GitLab and these centralized repositories, these places where a lot of people congregate essentially, which is great for the progression and innovation of our software. We've seen a massive uptick in innovation because of github over the last you know 12 years or more even i think they're 13 years old you know is that if they want to use fossil or or even they believe in your ideas they've got to essentially ostracize themselves eject from the norm the social norm of where to code and how do you share that code back to i suppose that world i guess you could do like mirrors right You can run Fossil locally and do mirrors with GitHub or something like that, I guess, if you wanted to.
3: Yeah, we have like a a, a GitHub mirror for SQLite that's completely automated. I mean, every time somebody commits, it automatically goes into GitHub. And it's a funny thing. We do that for a client that is not actually using Git. But all of their their import infrastructure assumes that everything's on GitHub. So, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we export to GitHub, and then they import from GitHub into their own... Proprietary version control system and use it right. from there.
0: You don't have to give that world up then. Yeah, you can live in the fossil world, except for its how many letters? Then F O S S I L at six letters.
3: A lot of people abbreviate it with yeah. just F. Well, you you said E for
0: your editor. I'm assuming F for just fossil, right? You know,
3: F push. <laughs> I guess you could do that or FX or something. Yeah. I, people use different things. The key differentiator, I think, and and one of the things that's really helped us. To innovate in fossil is the fact that it's backed by a relational database, whereas Git is backed by a bespoke key-value database, the pack file, and because it's a key-value database, that limits what you can do. So my idea is that look, you could backfit a relational database into Git by just making an, another file in the .git uh, directory, and whenever you want to use this relational database it would look at the Git log and say, well, what's happened since I was last updated? And then it would have to go back and, oh, there's been three new commits since then. Let me pull those in and, and parse out all the information I need and build up my relational tables from that. And then then let you use the database. But it would be completely backwards compatible. It would not change anything. It's just adding a new file to the repository. And then once you had a relational database in Git, you could very easily do things like, Say, you know, what check-ins came after this one? Mm -hmm. It would completely eliminate the whole question of um, a disconnected head. You would never again have a disconnected head because they would all be findable using the relational database.
0: Richard, what if Nat Friedman was listening to this show right now? And he's like, you know what? I like these ideas. I want to hire Richard. I want to... Borrow him, borrow his ideas.
3: Well, he couldn't hire me. We would, we, we could certainly talk, and okay. uh, I would certainly have, be happy to give him these ideas and say, "Run with them." And you do not need to give me credit. I, I just, I would thrill if, if Git or GitHub or something would improve the um, usability so that people could be more productive. I'm not going to move off of Fossil. It's ideally designed for the SQLite. Uh, development environment but if these ideas can be imported to, to other design methodologies then that would be great
2: so there's a fellow named Patrick DeVivo who has a website askgit.com and he has done a lot of work around basically I think he is retrofitting a relational database around a Git repository's history. To, he allows you to basically query Git as if it was SQL And I haven't looked at how he's doing it. I think he might be doing exactly kind of what you're describing. But I think the power that you're describing and having a relational database on your source control history would allow for a lot of interesting mining and visualizations and connecting of the dots that you're describing. And he's doing some of that with Git, but he's having to add tools in order to provide that kind of a thing.
3: Sure, sure. But, you know, once you get the relational database there, innovation tends to happen because, hey – Because you say, oh, hey, we need a wiki. Well, shoot, we've got this relational database. We'll just stuff it in there, you know? Right. (laughs) Or or we need a forum. We'll just stuff it in the relational database. (laughs) It's sitting right there. We'll just use it. If you build it, people will come. Yeah. And lots of interesting things will happen uh, if you were to do something like that. Yeah. You can even use a different relational database other than SQLite, and you won't hurt my feelings. Use DuckDB if you want to. Mm -hmm. You're not going to make me mad.
2: So one thing you did different with Fossil, we talked, we touched on it at the beginning of the show is that you didn't go public domain. You went BSE style license. Was that a reaction to something that happened with public domain or why did you decide to switch? Cause it's still very permissive, but obviously it's less permissive than public domain.
3: Uh, I started out GPL and uh, early on I, within a year, I got requests from proprietary people. Hey, we want to use this, you know, behind our firewall and our lawyers say we can't use gpl because of the viral nature of it and and you can argue that that didn't make sense there but you know it's easier to change the license than to argue with lawyers <laughs> so um truth you know I, I i got everybody who had contributed at that point at that t- point there hadn't been that many contributors and i got everybody to sign a release to bsd and so we cha- re-licensed it to bsd and that that just allowed more people to use it in in, in different ways Public domain is—it turns out to be hard to do. I didn't realize this when I—I I started SQLite. I thought public domain would be really easy. I just to say it's public domain and we're done. But uh, there are many jurisdictions that discourage that or don't recognize that, and I didn't know this at the time. And there's actually a lot of paperwork that you have to go through to release your code to the public domain, whereas um, we have the standard CLA contributor's license agreement for people to contribute for a Berkeley DSB for a, a, a BSD-style license. So it just worked out better to go with a, a traditional BSD-style license than trying to do public domain again.
0: Mm. Is it uh, possible SQL that will change to non-public domain considering that or?
3: N- no, I and, and this is just force of tradition and legacy. I think that it's always been public domain and we're going to keep doing it that way. Just, you yeah. uh, because at this point it's too late to change <laughs> <laughs> maybe if i'd known now uh, known in 2004 what i knew now i or i guess 2002 when i did this if i'd known in 2001 2002 when i did this what i know now i would have done it differently but um no we've we've got too much legacy behind it now it's 20 years of tradition in public domain so we're gonna do that we we i even went to the trouble of um there's a set of set of standard licenses and they have codes I forget what this is called but I had I got the you know the software blessing that is they have head of every SQLite source code file I got that registered as one of the acceptable um, licenses so mm. that uh, the automated tools that were scanning things would see this and say oh that's okay nice. we, we can accept that
0: actually I had a whole show on the first one was you may do good not evil which really made it challenging. For a maintainer to maintain the software, eventually it, it uh, went by the wayside and yep. it actually had a massive change in, I guess, their contribution and others to it because of the whole, what is good? What is evil? How can you really, yep. you, know, you know, it seems black and white in terms of, you know, opposites, but it was just difficult to actually put into practice.
3: Yeah, and, and the blessing on uh, SQLite is not a requirement. It's, it's literally a blessing. It says, may you do good and not evil. It doesn't yeah. say you must. <laughs> That's right. a difference there.
0: Truth. Yeah. Good point.
2: Yeah, it's like
3: grace versus law there. Yeah. There you go. Absolutely.
0: Well, one thing you do say in regards, back to the license, uh, you said, quote, you are free to steal bits of the fossil source code to use in other projects, including proprietary projects. So that means that, that you're not really holding these ideas to you and, and like, others can use these ideas, essentially.
3: Absolutely encourage other people to use it.
2: So let me throw a startup idea at you, and you, can, you tell me if it's good or bad.
3: <laughs> You're asking the wrong person, but I'll give you my opinion.
2: Okay. It's one word, two syllables, three syllables. Fossil Hub.
3: You know, there's this thing <laughs> called, um, that's already been done. It's, it's called, um, oh, why can't I call the name of it? I, 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 uh, Chisel. Oh, that's a good name. And uh, it's hosted by um, Roy Keane the the thing with the thing with fossil it's really designed for self-hosting we make it really easy to set up your own fossil server on a $5 a month vps or on a spare raspberry pi that you happen to have lying around it takes very little hardware yeah. to run fossil i know some of these other systems they say oh you got to you got to have at least a $40 a month uh, VPS in order to support this it's so heavyweight but it's very low resource and so you can just plop this up there so a single executable you plop it on your machine a two-line CGI script gets it running and, and it just does everything for you and so the motive for having a service like github for fossil is greatly reduced because you know if you were to if you were to take raw git or raw mercurial and, and want to set up a, a, a collaborative development site like GitHub, that's a lot of work. GitHub provides a very valuable service. With Fossil, the amount of work to set this up is greatly reduced. And so the the need for that is also greatly reduced. Now, what people have told me, though, is that for some people uh, who live in other countries, coming up with $5 per month in hard currency for a VPS is a hard problem. And for them... Uh, having access to a free repository like that is is a big deal mm-hmm. uh, but uh for those of us who are fortunate to live in the u s or or other western countries um, it's probably easier just to set up your own and then think of all right, let me let me let me just I'm coming back to the subject, but think with me just a second if you talk with people that like to go backpacking, do you have any friends or do you like to go backpacking yourself or do you have friends that do that yeah and yeah. you go out in the wilderness and you're on your own for five days and people ask, well, why do you do that? And people say, well, it's the freedom. It's just the joy being, being outdoors and having – think about this. Freedom means taking care of yourself. That's what people like about backpacking and, and wilderness adventures is they go out and they're, they're responsible for themselves, every aspect of their lives. They're carrying, they're carrying their house on their back and all of their food. That's what they like. Freedom means taking care of yourself. And Fossil tries to promote that. It gives you the tools to make it easier for you to to take care of yourself. Mm. Because you can take this one standalone binary, plop it on a server, add a two-line CGI script, and suddenly you've got a complete developer website up and running. Can you do that with other systems? Absolutely. But there's a lot more moving parts, a lot more you have to install, and a lot more to maintain.
2: Mm -hmm. To say that's pretty cool.
3: Think of Fossil as – your 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 ultralight backpacking tent there you
0: go camp anywhere
2: (laughs) it's
3: not as nice as a as a hampton inn but you know you you're taking care of yourself
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's your new tagline fossil not as nice as a hampton inn (laughs) 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 but you're taking care of yourself
3: (laughs) yeah taking care of yourself i like it that's the essence of freedom is taking care of yourself
2: yeah but there's also uh, balancing that out as community i think and so one, the thing that GitHub has that's even, I think, better than Git, more powerful than Git, is that's where it's the it's the hub part, right? Yep. And everybody, I'm going to use your analogy and kind of abuse it to a certain degree. Everybody wants to climb a mountain, but eventually they come back down to the base camp, right? You said back, yeah. back, now we got a base camp. <laughs> you want to hang out with people, and you want to see what they're doing. And, and it, is there any way with Fossil... To at least federate or have a directory or like, here's my cool open source stuff on Fossil, here's my Fossil instance, here's Adam's Fossil instance, he's out there over there, let's get together and, and collaborate. Because that's what I think, I think that's the magic on on GitHub.
0: Yeah, federation is interesting, Jared.
3: Sure, I, I agree with you. And now, if you talk to the people at GitHub, they will be quick to tell you that their company is not about Git, it's about Hub. yeah. Absolutely. And, and I agree a hundred percent. It's, it's a place for people to gather and collaborate. And they're, they're quite open about the fact that, uh, well, they started on Git, but they stay with Git simply because that's what everybody uses. If Git were to vanish tomorrow and everybody were to go to Mercurial or Monotone, GitHub would change. And, and, but it would still be the same company because it's about the hub. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think it'd be really cool if GitHub allowed you to have fossil repositories. (laughs)
0: Yeah. That would be interesting.
3: I don't think that'll happen.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How would that work then? And, you know, cast some vision for how that might work. How could you you have a repository on GitHub that was not a Git repository? What would it take to make that happen behind the scenes?
3: Uh, I don't understand their infrastructure enough to really, really say, but uh, I I know that um, SourceForge allows different kinds of repositories, don't they? Yeah. Uh, how do they do that? I'm not sure. I think you can actually have fossil repositories on SourceForge, if I'm not badly mistaken. I've never done that myself. Mm-hmm. The underlying data model of, of Git and fossil is the same. You've got commit objects, and you've got file objects, and the commit objects link, link together into, to form a directed graph, and you walk the graph to pull out the pieces you need. So the underlying data model is the same. Now, the, the, the details of the file formats are completely different, but the overall concepts are the same. So it seems like you should be able to use the same infrastructure to build a, a GitHub with Fossil.
2: Yeah, you probably have to introduce an abstraction layer somewhere in there that says, yeah. here's my interface, by, and I'm going to put Fossil on one side of it and Git on the other and it's going to unify to what their front end does. Exactly. Front end not meaning their web UI, but everything that's in front of that layer. So there would be some work involved,
0: but
3: Yeah, a lot of work, which is why I think it'll probably never happen, but
0: <laughs> it would be just as easy then to fossilize git, right? To to borrow some of the ideas of fossil that you talked about the relational database, some of the different principles and practices that you live upon that you that that if they agree might carry over to maybe You make the backwards and forwards history. I mean, because how many times do people get stuck behind some Git issues that seems to be solved by some of the things you've made simple with Fossil? Or the running out of the building on fire, Git push, you know? Like, and I mean, there's certain things like streaming the Git repository to GitHub or whatever. Like, there could be some ideas that you've, you know, laid claim to that could be translated, fossilized Git maybe.
3: I think that would be a better solution because it, what I hear a lot is from people they look at fossils really cool but it doesn't have rebase. Yeah. That's the number one complaint. Well, just take the cool features out of fossil and land them in git and then you've got rebase. <laughs> and all of your old tools continue to work. Yeah. All of your build infrastructure that depends on git continues to work as it did before, but you've got cool features like Git space UI and it brings up a web br- a web browser and and points it at your repository. It gives you a cool timeline or um, Git all sync that goes around and finds all of your Git repository and syncs all of them.
0: That would be cool, honestly. I mean, you know, you're essentially at a repository level for most commit. I mean, every commit really. Like you're not yeah. unanimously across all of your Git repositories inside of your code directory, which I think is probably standard for most developers. You yeah. got your home directory, your user directory, and you got a directory in there called code or yeah. source or something that you'd put all of your source code in. Then you've got multiple directories beneath that were which were basically individual repositories. But Git, my Git doesn't know about any of those other things. It just knows about its own single repository.
3: Right. And wouldn't it be cool to be able to sync them all with a single command? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be really cool. Um especially if you're going off network. You know, just there's nothing wor- worse than you know getting on the airplane with no Wi-Fi and suddenly remember oh I failed to sync the the, the the one one key repository that I need to make this work
0: and you can't work for those four hours or whatever it is like well that's,
3: exactly it
0: sucks to be that person
3: yeah <laughs> yeah so um, I think that's that would be a ra- a great way to move forward I really do and I'm, I'm happy to contribute ideas to anybody who wants to undertake this anybody who's listening to this who wants to build these go look and see what Fossil has. You don't have to agree with every uh, with my view of how things should be done. But look at the ideas and steal them. You don't even have to give me credit.
0: Fossil-scm.org if you're listening. It'll be in the show notes, of course, but that's a good place to start. Yeah. Take the ideas and run with them. I love it.
3: Let me just throw this out here. Um, a year ago, we, we used Markdown. Markdown has become the de facto language for documentation and so forth. I needed to draw diagrams in my markdown documents, you know, stick diagrams for architecture diagrams and stuff. And so I took the legacy language from the 1980s Bell Labs called PIC, P-I-C, and I created my own implementation of it that works on the web. And it's called PICTURE, P-I-K-C-H-R. And so in the middle of a markdown document, you can have just a little bit of code that does these elaborate diagrams, it's a really cool feature picture was originally written for fossil, but I put it out in a separate repository, which is mirrored on GitHub with the hopes that other people who have their own markdown engines would pick it up and integrate it into their markdown implementations as well. It conforms with the, um, the markdown standard for fenced code blocks. So it's not, it's not a language extension. It's well, it, or it's, it, it's an extension in the sense of it's an allowed extension. It's, specified in the in the markdown documentation so um, mm. if you want to look for ideas please please look at that I, I, I wish you would adopt it
0: yeah well Richard it's good having you back I mean it's been too many years I think I think we should make this more frequent if possible I love sure. just hearing your ideas I love hearing really I think your spirit you know the mm-hmm. the programmer spirit I think you bring you know and the, the freedom you bring the ideas you bring you know these this aspect of freedom this aspect of blessing you know this just this aspect of giving really it just I love that about who you are um, and I appreciate all that you've given this world and all the, all the ideas you've shared here today and uh, it's been awesome. Thank you.
3: Thank you for having me on the show. All
0: right. That's it for this episode of the change log. Thank you for tuning in. We have a bunch of podcasts for you at changelaw.com. You should check out, subscribe to the master feed, get them all at changelawcom slash master, get everything we ship in a single feed. And I want to personally invite you to join the community at changelawcom slash community. It's free to join, come hang with us in Slack. There are no imposters and everyone is welcome. Huge thanks again to our partners, Linode, Fastly, and LaunchDarkly. Also thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our awesome beats that's it for this week. We'll see you next week.